It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Hey, Chris. Hey, Andrew. I have spent the last three hours looking at um, legal language, trying to understand what the fuck is going on in Joshua Tree, Mm -hmm. and um, I still don't know. So we're going to talk about that. (laughs) Well, the broad gist is that there is a bolt war happening between the Park Service and and all of us, the climbers, with uh, the Access Fund as our spokespeople, um, is is kind of the 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 basic form of it. There's been an alert put out for about the end of a comment period around a new management wilderness management plan that um, talks a lot about bolts and fixed anchors again after all these years. Yeah, so the the headline is that there's going to be restrictions on bolts being placed. There's going to be new trail restrictions that uh, get put in. And People from L.A. are not going to be allowed to come out there and take mushrooms and find themselves. <laughs> if you're from other parts of the country, that's fine. Yes. But it's no, only L.A. Only L.A. And definitely not if you're in a movie <laughs> and it's part of a montage. Yeah. But if you want to do like a little bit of porn out there, that's totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I think the Access Fund's right to take a stand on that. If you want to do doggy on top of Equinox, you can still do that. You can still do that yeah. according to the, to the management plan. Yeah, it, I mean, this whole thing is kind of a cluster. Um, I mean, like, the, the the couple things that really stood out to me were uh, that the, the plan is recommending, um, or it seems to be really biased toward uh, bolt-intensive routes, which is like a code word for sport climbs. And sport climbs or bolt-intensive routes that are in wilderness areas in Joshua Tree are potentially on the chopping block by the by this new plan. And so they want to you know, potentially just remove these roots. So they kind of acknowledge that there's all these like aging roots and that there needs to be a way to manage them and fix up the bolts and stuff. But as part of this, they also add in like, we want to be able to like remove roots if we want to. And so I think there's like 400 roots, sport roots or something in in the wilderness area of, um, of Joshua tree that, you know, potentially at least a portion of those could be contenders for coming down and all of this is seems to be justified on something that it doesn't make much sense to me which is uh looking at the impact on the environment which is you know kind of what the dictates of like the wilderness the wilderness act you know demands and so I thought it would be interesting for us to just since we don't we actually we're like idiots and don't know anything about law um, you probably know more than me because no. Steph is a lawyer, but um, why? Because I listened to her adjudicate child custody. Doesn't it rub off? Yeah, just in some of that. I did. Law. I did just use the word adjudicate. Yeah, there, so there you go. You go. I'm yeah, you're basically there. a lawyer. <laughs> um, yeah. So I thought we could just talk about the seemingly arbitrariness and sort of silliness of you know, deeming sport routes to be more impactful than all other forms of climbing or just like so impactful that they are singularly 
worthy of removal or you know they alone like need not exist because they're they're so so bad so you know there's bouldering is going to be allowed but they you know there's they want to be able to like dictate where pads get thrown down and stuff and a big part of the plan is just like fixing the trails because it's basically if you go out there it's part of the fun of joshua tree in a way is you just can wander (laughs) in any which direction and just like look at the cool rocks and stuff and Obviously, you know, thousands and thousands of people every day doing that leads to just trampled terrain. And so they want to be able to just kind of establish better trails and stuff like that, you know, have some kind of rules for where where bouldering pads can be thrown down. But the big thing that really like kind of got me scared and just kind of irate was the way that they uh, spoke about sport routes or bolt intensive climbs. And so Chris, if you had three five-star routes next to one another, one was a sport climb, one was a trad climb with a bolted anchor and maybe a bolt or two in the middle of the of the wall, and one was a five-star boulder, which one of those three things do you think would be the uh, experience the most like degradation of the environment? The boulder. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, like I mean. A boulder, pro- like two people can stand and like climb a route, you know, back to back, but a boulder can host, you know, basically like an entire concert right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> with music and pads and weed and everything else. Right. Well, I don't have, you know, it's like we don't have any sort of empirical evidence in any case, but it just, it, it it's the sense of it is that, yeah, you get, and it's kind of ironic or it's counterintuitive because you know, bouldering, at least sort of the myth of bouldering is how simple it is. And it's just like, you know, one person out there and like some shoes in a chalk bag sort of thing. Um, just with, a pure experience. Yeah, of pure experience of climbing, which was the case when it was, you know, you, you maybe brought a little piece of carpet and dropped it down there and stuff. But um, the modern form of bouldering is so accessible and drawing so many people to it that I think these all bouldering areas are experiencing this thing where this huge swath of area underneath a boulder, you know, slowly grows and gets trampled. And, you know, from, if, if from nothing else than just camera tripods, mm-hmm. I think are probably like the worst thing because <laughs> everybody's like tromping out to get their angle, you know, with yeah. their, with their tripod. So, yeah, I mean, in, in, and it's just, this is the, I mean, maybe it's happened before and we haven't paid attention. It's very likely, but it seems like this is the first time I've heard a government agency starting to create regulations based on the style of climbs. Yeah. And before it was it was it was kind of black these arguments were black and white. A fixed anchor, not a fixed anchor. And a fixed anchor was anything from a bolt to a piton to a, a sling to a whatever and that was it and either either they were allowed or they weren't allowed. And here we have this thing where we've got the the park service itself using words like sport climb, bolt intensive, pads, like all the nitty gritty, which is is completely understandable that we're getting there. But it's it's kind of a thing where to start, especially when you start parsing sort of mixed bolted trad climbs versus sport climbs, you know, versus a run out uh What's bolt intensive actually mean? It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I mean, I've been on plenty of sport routes, which I, that I had thought 
should be much more bolt intensive than they were. <laughs> and, and other ones where I'm, yeah, like these, there's like three bolts on here that I'm not going to clip on the, on the go. So I, it, it's just, I mean, that's all like in the weeds. And that, I guess that's my point is that like, it's like the, the park service itself is getting in the weeds now about how and what style we're using out there climbing. Yeah. I think that that's really concerning. And it's also, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, the idea that one route, because it has 10 bolts on it would necessarily be like more impactful on wilderness than one route that has two bolts at the anchor and one in the middle of the wall. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, yeah. like they're both, it's a cragging area. People are going to go cragging and they're going to impact the area the way that, that climbers do, regardless of what the, you call it a trad climb or a mixed climb or a pure climb or a sport climb or whatever it is that they, the, the, the words that they're using to, to describe these things, that's sort of irrelevant to mm-hmm. the, to the fact of whether there's a tiny little piece of metal in the wall that no one can even see. And so it seems to be like extremely biased to just, you know, sport climbing, which it is a totally valid style of climbing right. and established and all of that. So, and, and the funny thing is, is like, I know we talk our ass on this thing, but especially you, Andrew, like <laughs> literally, I mean, you've, you've tried to figure this out and based on like access fund messaging, um, what the park service has on their, on their, on their website as the management plan. And, and it's, I mean, it's really confusing and it's, and it's, to me, it sort of starts to feel like it's that way on purpose. And I think maybe that's what the problem is, is that they're leaving all this vagueness in there because then they can interpret it later and, and reinterpret it. Yeah. And at least one thing I saw that the accidents fund stated was that, yeah, that was a concern that another different superintendent could, could look at this management plan and there's all this leeway for them to, to crack down harder or not, or, or chop or not replace or not give out permits. Like there's just too much wiggle room. And, and, and I, you know, I, I've brought this up. I know to you before, maybe I've brought it up uh, publicly, but there's a strange case out there that no one talks about is that the Canyonlands National Park banned all fixed anchors. I mean, it's, it's at least 20 years ago already, like way back in the, the olden times, even before Moab was a climbing scene, like there was literally a, a handful of climbers in, in the town and um, not that much visitation and stuff like that. And they, they went ahead and banned it. And it was all based on a decision by the, the superintendent at the time who had, a, you know, he had a fucking, you know, whatever, a thorn in his butt about about bolts and he did cite this this idea and it because it was post sport climbing that there would you know this wall or something would suddenly just sprout hundreds and hundreds of bolts so his fear was these examples he had seen places where there were you know a grid bolted wall and you know basically called it and it's funny because we talk about like the access fund and and all these organizations talk about like we can't like set these precedences and i've always been like but there is this national park out there that banned and continues to ban fixed anchors is canyonlands a national park oh yeah and it's just like so what that says to me is that it is in fact possible Hmm. and that's what we live in fear of is that 
you know, there's wilderness, there's, there's national forests, there's all these different things. But it, if this person, this, this, or in this park has gotten away with it. And I think maybe it was because it was, I don't think it was quite pre access fund, but it might've been, but it was like so far in the past that nobody like, you know, there was no organization, there was no like army to come to the rescue. And so it just passed by and, and now it's like set in stone pun intended or not set in stone as the case may be but it it remains you cannot like crusher fucking you know he's made this whole crazy career out of wrapping off these towers with these weird methods where he can retrieve everything Mm -hmm. like he they literally like put a a four by four across the chimney wrap off the four by four and then flick the use ropes to pull the four by four down afterwards like crazy shit like that to you know, to sort of legally get away with um, doing new towers in Candylands because you can't even, they, they won't, you know, technically you can't even wrap a sling around a boulder and leave the sling. Right. So, um, you know, hopefully he also engaged in some civil disobedience, but um, th- that's my vote in a place like that. <laughs> but Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that it's just odd that bolts are like the thing that's getting the most, or I don't know. It's just like the least impactful thing of all the things that one does out there. You know, the tromping around on, you know, making your own trails. Mm-hmm. I get that. That's a really rational or like a, a big problem that should be solved. Putting a, you know, bouldering pads down wherever you want. um, And, you know, just kind of like wrecking huge vicinity around boulders and then just kind of crisscrossing around between the boulders and stuff like that. I get that that is really impactful and there's solutions to how to like fix that. The bolt, the bolts things just seem so weird to me. Mm-hmm. Like it's just doesn't, whether something is a spore climb or a mixed trad route, it sh- does not matter in the slightest um, in terms of how impactful it is. Roots are either popular or they're not. Right. And, um, and so using that, those metrics is like, I don't want the government, like, you know, you having that much leeway and having that much arbitrariness in terms of what they decide, um, is and isn't, you know, valid for climbing. Yeah. And I feel like that's the, that's like, cause the access fund, you know, we watched a little bit of, um, what was it like a forum? It was on like this. a webinar. Yeah. A webinar. And they they themselves seem to be in disagreement about what this all means, mm-hmm. including you know someone sort of stating that the the sport climbing part of it was was just a bit of a proxy for popularity, and yeah. that they would actually be measuring popularity, and they just feel like because historically it's true that you know these sport climbs draw more people to them, which is and isn't true but i mean you know we know that within climbing sport climbing is way more popular than track climbing so there's that but i mean a shitty sport climb and an amazing perfectly splitter 510 crack climb you're gonna have more people on the 510 anyway but so, so what i'm saying is i think the freak out a little bit is again all this leeway all this sort of arbitrariness of what constitutes damage to the environment and i and i get it like the bolt thing is is really fascinating because you know, I mean, there's a like uh, Glen Canyon. Uh, what is it? It's it's the basically Lake Powell. What's the, it's like Glen Canyon? It's not a national park. It's like a recreation area. It's called Glen Canyon Recreation Area. It's around Lake Powell, and then it goes a swath of uh, of the Colorado River Basin right up against 
the actual national park. So it's a it's a BLM area. It's got more regulations than like normal BLM land, which has almost none. That's our favorite federal land. That's because you can do whatever you want. It's somewhere in between, mm-hmm. and uh, and it and it like on the books has a bolting ban, mm. and there's plenty of towers. There's uh, lots of crack climbing down there and everything else, and it's you know it's a place where I I don't give a fuck. Like it's a complete like civil disobedience. I don't care. I'm, you're never gonna know. It's this you know it's one of these classic places where there's like four rangers and they're all fucking dealing with people crashing their boats. But in, but the other thing that like chaps my ass is they preside over one of the like biggest envir- American environmental disasters of the 20th century. Right. Literally, like the fucking Lake Powell, like submerge you know tens of thousands of acres however many fucking sacred sites however many archaeological sites whole towns were fucking inundated with water and it continues to be this fucking giant environmental disaster it became an evaporation pool it's never done what it was supposed to do it's about to drop below a level they can even produce electricity Mm. half of their infrastructure doesn't even reach the water anymore like height marina is is desolate because the the boat ramp is like literally like a quarter mile from the water now like so it's just a gigantic piece like a gi- football sized piece of fucking concrete sitting in the middle of the desert basically yeah it's a fucking mess and they're like fucking worried about me putting a two bolt anchor at the top of a crack yeah it's like fuck straight off dude yeah. like you know and that but it but it, it illustrates what you're saying like what are you fucking worried about what is this bolt in the middle of fucking nowhere doing to the plant life, to the 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 fauna? Like it, nothing. It's the an inanimate not, object. The bolt is not doing anything. No. Bolts are, are the most environmental part of climbing in some way. <laughs> I know they really are. I yeah, mean, it's like, not it's the like stomping around yeah. below the root. That yeah. So it's just like it's maddening and it's yeah. just illogical. And um, but then yeah, you you just talking about the all the you know the submerged underwater archaeological sites in yeah. Lake Powell that was also part of this uh Joshua Tree plan um which is like you know kind of giving leeway to or just kind of giving voice to recognizing you know uh indigenous sites or artwork or whatever mm-hmm. it is um and it's all su- super vague language and that just kind of worries me too because of what we've seen in Australia mm-hmm. in the Grampians where They've just basically declared entire cliffs like off limits because of, um, ne- you know, like nebulous c- connections to uh, indigenous or aboriginal, you know, people from that area. And it just seems like that's just opening up a potential to just shut climbing down. Well, and that's important because, you know, that's a that's a thing that goes on in Indian Creek. Part of Bears Ears is that there are climbs in and around archaeological sites. And climbs in the past that were put up too close have been closed. But the, it's again, it's sort of this arbitrary idea of like how close is too close. Mm-hmm. And by and large, and, and again, we, we, you know, we keep going back to the <laughs> poor petroglyph guy. <laughs> but by and large, climbers told like, hey, this climb is closed and you shouldn't go anywhere near this thing. They don't. And, and, but it's climbing like, 50 feet away from it, okay, it's climbing 20 feet away from it. And some people, you know, I, I read a recent article actually that was in, I believe it was in the Salt Lake Tribune about, you know, there are definitely 
people who are part of the the sort of the native community that that feel like yeah climbing anywhere on the cliff if there's these things it shouldn't be allowed so i mean there's a tension out there and so again it it's that same thing of like well if they get to decide a hundred feet is too close or 500 feet or a quarter mile or whatever. I mean, if, if there's not language being specific in there, then, then you're at the mercy of someone being like, you know, I don't want you looking at it. Your gaze. It's like, uh, what is it? Schrod- Schrodinger's <laughs> if you're thinking cat. of this artwork while yeah. you're climbing, then you're too you close. Is it Schro- Schrodinger? Schrodinger? Schrodinger's cat, you know, the, the unobserved cat, mm-hmm. like just observing the, the, the artwork, you know, creates another multiverse where it's mm. destroyed so don't look at it kind of thing I mean, i'm getting out there but i mean if you close a site because there's artwork there or because it's a specific archaeological site climbers won't go there or you know you you go with the spain model which is like there's just like an open dig with like important you know like uh like uh the santa Linia cave is like got like caveman remains like that you literally like lay on top of <laughs> really yeah and, let's uh, not go there though. i think yeah. we could find a happy medium where i mean they <laughs> they just built like a wooden like platform over the the, the dig site oh and, really yeah and you can just like climb there and they're huh. like oh whatever it's chill <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know if i trust climbers that much <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, anyway, I uh, I don't know what to make of this. There's like a you know there's uh, a public comment period that it closes March 13th, uh, which will be long in the past by the time you guys hear this, I would imagine. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe, maybe not. But um, but yeah, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? I think that I, I think that if this does get passed as it is, my hunch is that the access fund will have a good case to bring to the courts to challenge some of the language that's used because it directly contradicts some of the precedent in the wilderness act and the PO 41 or 45 or 43. I forget which number it is, but one of those POs, um, the that, old POs. The, that old PO that just like lets us climb on wilderness yeah. land, you know, that one. Well, the, the, the thing is, is real quick is that fixed anchors, are, are is it a PO or a DO? It could be a DO, it or it could be, a be a, it could be anywhere from forty to forty adjudi- Are we adjudicating which PO it is? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the fixed the allowing of fixed anchors is in the original Wilderness Act, or was an amendment to it. Um, and to get rid of that altogether would take an act of Congress, which is basically our force field against um like banning climbing completely in a lot of these places yeah so they're not trying to get rid of it but they are trying to sneak around it by calling by calling anchors installations installations which really refers to like you know you can't put in a road you know in a wilderness area that would be an installation so they're kind of like being like really manipulative with some of the language and it's really hard to figure that out and i think the access fund has pointed that out but I I was like really I was we were talking about this earlier I was kind of just bummed about how they were more focused on this very legalese definition of what is and isn't a fixed anchor what or a valid fixed anchor when I I think the lead is to be pissed about the sport climbs that this in the wilderness area that this plan says it wants to remove if they deem them to be incompatible with the wilderness act. Um, as opposed to acknowledging their historical precedent and and updating them as needed, mm-hmm. um, so 
to me, that was, that was like the thing that was really the big takeaway and the thing that I'm, I'm most concerned about. Yeah. They, they could erase what they say, 400 roots. They didn't name how many, but we heard that on the, on the webinar right. that there, there are 400 roots and they're potentially all of them are on the chopping block. Yeah. I would imagine at least some of them would be maybe yeah. not all of them. Anyway, don't go to Joshua tree. <laughs> or it's do. too crowded. It's too crowded. And if you do take mushrooms. <laughs> Dr. Jared Vagie is a doctor of physical therapy from Los Angeles who specializes in climbing injuries and writes about how to avoid and treat them on his site, theclimbingdoctor.com. Yeah, it's been, uh, we figured it out right before we came on here. It's been seven years since you were on the Normacast, Jared. It goes back into some ancient history for that for that show, actually. And we haven't spoken or seen each other since then either, so... A lot of changes. I've had a kid. You got married. Um, you know what else has been going on in those those seven years since uh, since I at least talked to you back then. Well, I think just life, right? I think everything's yeah. changed, and like I mean, climbing's changed too. But I, I just remember. I think we were at the. It was at the climbing or the climbers festival in Lander, Wyoming. Okay. And yeah. right when we when we had the interview, and it was in the van, had the hall set up, and I had my my first book that I wrote, which had a picture of me with my shirt off with a TheraBand wrapped around yeah, yeah. me with like my arms right. overhead and it was like lying down on the on the table and then we just started getting after it and and, and mm-hmm. talking and uh yeah I mean it definitely for me a lot's changed since then I think a lot's in climbing's changed I don't know before I jump into my stuff maybe mm-hmm. Chris and Andrew what you know if you were to <laughs> in 30 seconds say what's you know what's changed in your life in the past eight years seven eight years what would be the you know, your 30 second quick, quick hit married and kids. Yeah. I mean, I'm not married, but I have a kid. I mean, that's really it. Right. Isn't it, Andrew? Yeah. Um, yeah. But from a climbing perspective, um, I don't know what's changed. I mean, basically standards are basically stagnant. The sports in decline. Uh, the Olympics was a complete bummer. Um, you know, the gyms are all becoming a monopoly owned by a single corporation that's just going to ruin everything. But yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm optimistic about their future. <laughs> and this is evening, Andrew. Particularly, is particularly dark, Andrew. Um, but yeah, the glasses dark outside. The glass is half full, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, aside from that, let me. I wanted to actually go back just a second. Is that? One of the things that came out of me talking to you is that I actually got very concerned about parts of my body. And one of the big things that's happened in seven years is obviously we've all aged. But I, I actually feel like I, I kind of have this deeper step into like, you know, if not decrepitude, like a little bit of decline. Like the difference for me and my body between I would have been about 43 then and now is, is you know, much bigger than between like, you know, 33 and 43 or whatever. Um, but the thing that I got from that whole thing was that my shoulders, you, you, you know, you talked to me, I think literally about how to protect my shoulders and some exercises and you gave me your book and and I've been doing some of those exercises since then actually with bands. And, uh, I think you've really, really, really helped me in the last seven years protect 
a few of the parts of my body that, that I think could really go bad. And, and, um, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, it's like talking about a, a negative or whatever, where it's like, I don't know why it didn't happen. You know, you can, you know why it happened when it happens, but you don't really know why it doesn't happen. But I really believe that some of the stuff you taught me and convinced me to do, because part of the interview was you like just talking me into like trying to protect, <laughs> do in, injury prevention. I and, remember um, that. I, so anyway, I, I definitely want to thank you because I think, I feel like it's really helped me. Um, and it was just, I mean, it's really like four or five things that I do to warm up with my shoulders and things like that. And, you know, so anyway, I, I just wanted to like appreciate that in the last seven years that you don't know it, but you've been, you've been like this little angel protecting my shoulders. Um, and they're, <laughs> they're doing good. They're, they're pretty pain free, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. It's so interesting. Cause when I, I remember when I was talking to you or even when I talked to climbers, I'm like, Oh, do you have any injuries? And I think you, you were first like, no, I don't have anything. I'm, I'm totally fine. I was like, really? Is, is there anything that, that's slightly bothering you? And yeah, it just got, went down that path. And it's, you know, I'm psyched that you kept up with it. That was, that was one of the hardest things and continues to be one of the hardest things is, you know, trying to have some type of maintenance routine program for our body's health. And one thing like what I do, I link it with a habit. So like my most common habit is brushing my teeth. So I, you know, go to bed, brush my teeth. I'm like, all right, that's when I'm doing my, you know, daily exercises, the things that try and balance out the body. Um, but it's nice to be able to, to link everything together. So I'm actually pretty impressed you've been able to stay that consistent over the past few years. Well, I mean, you know, let's not like, you know, bring <laughs> out the parade because, you know, it's it, it, it like everything else has come and gone. But but I also know like when I feel like, uh oh, I'm like, OK, back to that stuff for sure. And it's funny because I, I have some back issues that are just more life than climbing because climbing actually makes it feel better. And I'm not nearly as good about it with that. So I think the climbing part of it is is like the thing that's a driver, like this idea that, oh, if I fuck my shoulders up. I'm good. I'm done. You know, and a lot of people my age can do something as bad as to like end climbing for them or at least climbing at any significant grade. So I think that that fear is enough to like keep me on it while my back is like, eh, doesn't really bother me climbing. It's just kind of an annoying. And so I'm much worse with uh, with that kind of stuff. So anyway, um, but we can go back to our original thought about the the changes because that's kind of what we wanted to start with. So. Yeah, well, Chris, what do you like? What do you think has changed in climbing? Like, as far as like, if you were to put, you know, a finger on like one thing, and you know, maybe Andrew, you think too. Like, what what do you think's the biggest difference the past? Let's maybe say decades, since it's easier to you know mm-hmm. kind of put something in a you know a ten year increment. But what's the beginning of the biggest change? Because the patients I see now as climbers are doing things much differently on a daily basis than the climbers and patients I was seeing maybe seven, eight years ago. Well, the big thing, obviously, is gyms. So how that's affected the way people climb is probably significant. Um, but I also feel like there's just so many more people climbing hard. I, I don't know. And that, that's always been something where I don't know if that's just me or if there's a statistic around it. But um, it seems like that a sport climbing area like 513 or whatever is not hard for very many people anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think from the gyms, the interesting standpoint is what I've seen from injuries with just so many people climbing in gyms now 
is you just have so much access to volume, you know, of, of climbing, right? And there's so much that you can do in one place and at one time. And that's that's been a challenge, and especially how some of the routes at some of the gyms are set, right? It's much different than some of the body-centric movements that you would have to use outside. Like the most common injuries that I see are fingers, elbows, and shoulders, right? Those are kind of the most common with climbers. And, you know, for fingers, it's pulley injuries uh, or tenus tenosynovitis. Those are like the most common kind of terminologies. And then in the elbow, it's medial and lateral elbow pain. So kind of inside and outside. And then in the shoulder, it's like a whole cluster of, of different injuries. So yeah, it's been interesting how it's changed over time with the gyms. And then the physiques of climbers have definitely changed a little bit as well, as, as I've noticed over time. It's, I mean, if you think kind of the younger, newer climbers coming up, like, what do you, like, the climbers that are crushing it, doing a lot of stuff in the gym, very dynamic movements, like, what physiques do you notice if you kind of compare that to, like, people have been climbing for the last maybe, like, 15, 20 years and been around for a while? Do you have any kind of views on that? I, I, I don't, um, I have uh, body blindness, so I, I don't notice <laughs> physiques. Um, Everyone, everyone's beautiful in the same way. Yeah. Everyone's, it's, yeah, it's exactly. all about the only thing that matters to me is, um, how hard you red point. I don't care what you look like. <laughs> I don't care what you look like. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can't speak to the last 10 years, but I, I've, I've definitely, you know, I've lived long enough to have moved through the like the super skinny era to yeah. the muscular era. I, I always think about uh, Sharma having, having sort of ushered in like the, you know, he kind of came in when all the, all the, the top climbers, especially comp climbers were all worried about how heavy they were. And so, you know, those old stories about like people just starving themselves and things like that, that feels like it's gone out the window. I don't know if that's been in the last 10 years, but um, but I, I don't know if that's, that applies, but I, th- I think that, you know, people are f- far more just s- sports minded in terms of building muscle and not worrying about how heavy they are necessarily with that muscle building. Yeah. And I've, I've seen that as a positive trend and something I've seen that's very interesting too, as well is the lower body flexibility. So I have a lot of climbers, they come in injured and they have, you know, different injuries, mostly in the upper body. But climbers are coming in, especially the younger, more developing climbers, with tons of flexibility in their lower body. Um, and when I was treating like the majority of climbers, let's say maybe seven, ten years ago, you know, stiffer hips, stiffer low back, you know, it wasn't as much of an emphasis. And now a lot of climbers are coming in. I'm like, man, this is more equating to some of the gymnasts, you know, that, that I would see as just kind of full body all around you know, muscle strength, power, and, and flexibility as well. So it, it's been interesting to kind of see some of the younger generation put an entire emphasis, you know, on on the lower part of their body uh, as well as abil- ability to just be really dynamic and mobile. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that's a conscious thing or is it just uh, working out that way with, you know, the, the the type of athleticism that's required to climb hard? You would you would imagine that they would be good runners or skiers or hikers or something and have gymnastic style flexibility as well. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe part of it is the ones that grow up maybe doing competition and indoor climbing, the routes are becoming so dynamic and three-dimensional that whether it's just natural selection or they're just having to put their bodies in 
these very expanded positions with their lower body and upper body and then be able to move out of them. So potentially that's driving some of, you know, some of the climbers to just be more flexible and, and work on that. But um, but it's been an interesting trend with that. And I think one other trend that I've seen is there is so much more training in climbing. Mm, and right. that is like there's climbers that I see. And I'd say over half of the climbers that I see injured themselves training, not climbing. Like that's like what, what got them injured. And so I'm just trying to think back to like a, you know, a decade ago and like how much I was even training for climbing or hangboarding, you know, versus now, but it's, it's definitely been at least what I've seen a huge uptick in training volume and uh, maybe sometimes more offset, more doing more training, the actual climbing. What's the uh, breakdown for injuries that you see are in terms of acute injuries versus like, um, you know, overuse or long-term kind of slow degradation injuries? Cause the slow degradation and like kind of long-term things that just kind of build over time. That's, that's primarily been my experience with injury and climbing, but I'm, I'm curious to know how many, you know, like snapped pulleys you see versus just, I've been climbing every on the same route for three years and my shoulder hurts uh, type stuff. Yeah. I mean, everything boils down to typically for me, the body region. So if you have, if I have a climber that comes in with a finger injury, it's very likely that the injury occurred sometime in the past three to four weeks because that's an acute injury. It's keeping them out of climbing and they're immediately, you know, making a call or sending an email to come in for it. If a climber's coming in with shoulder or elbow pain, that's typically something that's lingered over time. And it's kind of started as something that's a little bit more annoying or a nuisance, has developed over time and then got to a point where it's either affecting a project that they're climbing affecting their training or they're like, I kind of need a plan to, to do something about it. So I'd say probably more acute, like subacute in the fingers and then up to the elbow, shoulder, that, that, that'd be more kind of your chronic injuries. And then if you go down to the lower body, uh, definitely knees and ankles would be more of the acute injuries with the boulders. So, you know, someone uh, landed, fell, rolled their ankle or fractured uh, bone in their foot uh, or they injured their knee doing like a high heel hook. Those are kind of fairly typical acute injuries that I'll see. Can you give um, our listeners just a you know a perspective on how long it takes to heal some of this stuff? Because I think that's one of the biggest misperceptions around, among climbers is how long the connective tissue takes to heal. Because uh, from what I've read, it's like 200 days or something like that. Yeah, maybe you could just like speak to that as a, someone who actually knows what they're talking about and not me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of it depends on the injury itself and the in the region. But maybe I'll use like a pulley sprain or like a you know pulley ligament in the finger. So a climber just like pops the ligament in their finger. Like, when can they return to climbing, and when are they fully recovered? It's probably that'd be a good kind of basis. And a lot of it kind of breaks down to the grade, like how severe the injury was or happened and if you think of like a pulley injury uh you imagine like there's a the best way to describe it like if you look down at your finger you imagine that your pulleys are the quick draws keeping the rope which is the tendons kind of flush against the the rock route which is your finger so you can kind of imagine that the quick draws are your pulley and if you sprain a pulley i guess you pulled a quick draw. I guess you you were uh, 
in a not such a good bolt or your trad gear pulled out or whatever, you know, whatever it is, that'd be the kind of the idea for that. And those are by far the most common climbing injuries. Uh, some of the studies show almost 40% of all climbing injuries are, are pulley sprains or ruptures. And they're broken down into different grades. So the question of when a climber can return really depends on the actual grade of the injury. So a grade one is like a, like a slight tearing. A grade two is a partial rupture. A grade three is a complete rupture. And then a grade four is, is a full rupture. Um, so there's criteria for that. So for example, a lot of climbers will go see like an orthopedist and they'll say, I just injured my finger. Uh, can I go back to climbing? And a typical response would be, uh, no, you have to wait, you know, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks before you can get back to sport. And they've done a pretty good amount of research on this, that climbers can actually return to loading their fingers way sooner than they think, especially with these pulley injuries. And for example, with a grade one injury, you can start loading it after a week, but that's pain-free with a low load. And easy climbing, you know, you start easy climbing at about two to three weeks, you know, after after that injury. And a moderate, you can start loading it after two weeks. Easy climbing is four to six weeks. And severe, which is, you know, multiple pulleys, it's you know, or full tear is, you know, after three weeks, you can start to load it. And after about, you know, six weeks, uh, you can start easy climbing. And there's protocols that are very specific that are laid out for, for climbers to follow for the, these types of injuries. And typically you can get back to hard climbing, like a mild pulley sprain after about six weeks, a moderate after about nine weeks, and then a severe pulley sprain after about 12 weeks. And there's this stage, what I notice with climbers, is after they get back to climbing maybe their red point level, and they come in to the clinic and I test them, they can still climb hard, but there is still a deficit in the strength in that finger. And the biggest mistake that I find is that climbers either take too much time to rest, or once they get back to that level where they're climbing hard they don't take that next step and isolate that finger through some uh, some additional training, you know, loading that finger, you know, specifically on a hangboard or on a portable hangboard. So, so I don't know if that, that answers that as far as with yeah, timelines. No, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. And is, is that a, is that a protocol of like, let pain be your guide in terms of what you do? First of all, there's protocols like Luter and colleagues put out like a timeline of return to sport and, uh, you know, in a scientific paper and there's pulley protection splints that you can wrap around your finger to keep the pulley flush, you know, the tendon flush to the bone. Um, but but yeah, those timelines are, are protocol based and let pain be your guide is in the first early stage of, you know, kind of it's called I call it no pain hangs and you can't do anything that generates pain. And the hypothesis is that pain is being generated because that tendon is kind of bowstringing out towards that pulley. And as long as you do something within a pain-free range, then, you know, it is safe or effective. If you really wanted to test that scientifically, you would take what's called diagnostic ultrasound. You would put it up to the finger. It gives you an image. And you would measure how far that tendon is from the bone. And then you would have someone load and make sure that it doesn't go more than two millimeters from the bone. And as long as you're doing that, they're safe, you know, to continue the exercise. But most people don't have that access. So we just say, let pain be your guide in that early stage. And the later stages, which I term low pain hangs, 
is you'll do some hanging or some loading, but you will want to generate pain because the tissues need to remodel and change over time. You know, we're not shooting in the dark and maybe that's a thing that's changed in the last 10 years as well. Um, you know, more information, more protocols, you know, every time, you know, this, this is examined and, and you can get data from what happens to a person. I think that's a crazy thing. Like even three years ago, there weren't these studies like Mm -hmm. one year ago, you know, there was an updated study that released that identified, you know, the four different types of pulley injuries. There's actually five, there's four A and four B. Um, with diagnostic ultrasound, and then they re-identified and updated all these protocols and timelines. And then before that, there was a study they took 47 climbers, and they gave them these rings that went around the finger that basically uh, were custom-molded, and they kept the pulley in place. And they had them wear these rings, go through a protocol. And almost all the climbers in that study, I have to go back and double-check, I think like 43 or 46 of the climbers you know, in the study return, you know, back to red point and hard climbing. So it's, it's really interesting. There's now research to support, and maybe that's something I, you know, I, I could have touched on earlier, but there's a ton of really cool climbing research that is constantly coming out. Um, and we can use that to guide our, our practice, which I was sh- really shooting in the dark, like, let's say seven years ago when we met, if someone came in with a pulley injury, I mean, I wouldn't know a third of what I'm giving them now, and I wouldn't have anything as evidence to back it up. So climbers are returning back to sport so much quicker because we now know based on experience and research what to give them. That's really cool. And um, one thing I was just thinking as you were talking, and this is a thing that I've kind of noticed that's changed over the last decade, but and this is really more of a critique of the, I guess, the training uh, side of the sport, but, and and less, um, less relevant to your field, but maybe this is true in your field as well, but there just seems to be a proliferation of, you know, like training gurus to, for lack of a better word, but, you know, people who can sit down and write a hangboard routine and, and call themselves trainers or whatever. And there's lots of these people out there in the climbing world. And I don't know how much, um, I mean, there's clearly no, uh, bona fides that would necessarily like endow you to to call yourself an official trainer there's no degree you can get so to speak is that a phenomenon that you see in the in the sort of recommendation space of how to treat injuries and i i guess i'm curious to hear your thoughts also about the training space as well if if you've noticed this like guru guru creep so to speak and and In a, in guru climbing. creep versus a creep who calls himself yeah. a guru. There's creepy gurus and then there's <laughs> guru creep. creep. And, um, but yeah, I don't know. Do you guys know, have you noticed that Chris? And, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll, I could speak to both cause I've definitely noticed both. So if I rewind, let's say eight to 10 years, there was two to three people on the injury front. Let's just say rock climbing injuries to start. You know, there was myself and maybe two other people that were kind of, let's say, more known or out there, had, I mean, magazine columns or whatever it was, right, Um, on preventing and rehabilitating climbing injuries. And that was it. And it was basically like that for a decent amount of time. There's a good and bad thing. The bad thing is you're getting, you know, specific advice from only a small set of people. I think a good thing on my end is, you know, I was able to amplify, you know, my, my thoughts, my visions, my, my biases, you know, quite well. Fast forward now and in, let's say, physical therapy, rehabilitation, 
there are so many you know, physical therapists, chiropractors, you know, many people um, that are climbers that are specializing or, you know, gurus in climbing injury prevention. And I actually see that as a good thing. You know, one is you have a lot of voices, right? You have plenty of people uh, that are out there and you have a lot of access. You have way more people, but that's actually shifted my role a little bit. And my emphasis now is Less on trying to, I still think it's really important to educate the climbing community, but I see it's more as a, I don't know if a job's the right word, but I feel like I now want to educate the physical therapists that are treating climbers and say, hey, over these past 10 years, this is kind of what I've learned. And that's been my shift in emphasis is saying, okay, can there be a consistent message and can there be a community? Can there be a lot of these medical providers that are not like, this is the one way to do it. You got to do it follow this method, it's no, here's a lot of information, a collaboration, and here's some resources and and people that are involved. So I think on the physical therapy front, you know, I kind of joke now that like everyone's a climbing physical therapist, but really I I actually see that as a positive thing, uh, at least in my field, uh, because it just has way more access, if, if that makes sense. In training, well, that's a little different, right? It's a little challenging because, you know, training is I say for physical therapy, you do need a license, a certification, you know, a specific, you know, kind of process um, for training. You could be a personal trainer, you know, or, or someone that, you know, certified strength and conditioning specialist. But there are a lot of trainers that are, are focusing on climbing. And I'm the camp that more information is better. Um, and I tend to be someone that is rather kind of communal and supportive. But I can see how if someone's preaching or being a guru or saying this is the one method, the only method to do, that can be a little challenging and tricky. Yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Like I said, I can speak heavily towards physical therapy and rehab. But yeah, what are your guys' thoughts on, on the training perspective? Because from my end, like I said, I'm more the glass is three quarters full, even if it's half full, if that makes sense. So I'm coming from a different end. And so I'm like, oh... Yeah, you want to train for climbing. By the way, here's a list of seven different people, quote unquote, who are gurus that each have a different perspective. Choose one that fits your perspective well, and they're all a little bit different. Uh, I see that as, well, I have this nice appetizer platter of of referrals. But I don't know. Yeah, Andrew and Chris, maybe you guys are a little less seeing the glass three quarters, you know, three quarters full. What What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm happy to take the uh, glass quarter full perspective on <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, I'm half. I'll go half. You'll go um, half, all right. <laughs> I like the, you know, I'm right in the middle here. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think I think your points are well made, and I think there's, uh, it's great that there's more information. And, you know, this it does, you know, it, that's kind of how this works is, like, there's lots of people sharing perspectives and sharing their information and figuring out what is true and what isn't true. I get a little cynical or not cynical. I just am a little skeptical of the validity of, of everything that I hear. And I feel like the way that people try to differentiate themselves from the guru next door is that they make their, you know, regime a little bit more complicated or they do things just a little bit different. And so much of this stuff is very simple, I think. And Training is like quite simple, especially for most people. Literally just going climbing in the gym is probably sufficient for 90% of climbers out there. And, uh, you know, working on technique and, and just doing it often. So I think that we tend to maybe make 
some things a little bit too complicated that actually don't need to be so complicated. And that's from a training perspective. I think from an injury perspective, I'm a little less confident saying that, but, um, but yeah, those are my, my uh, quarter full thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all that, but from a different angle, if you will. And, and because I agree that like when it comes down to it, it's, it's, you know, there are, there's a, a, some simple protocols and guidelines. I don't think there's like some guy out there or a girl running a training program where she's just like decimating her clients or his clients, like, because he's so off base. I mean, it's, it's all kind of coming from what you just said. Like, yeah, you go climb and you warm up, you stretch, all those things make sense. And so I think that like, and maybe this goes with, with all the physical therapists too. It's like, you're partially a salesperson and you're selling your version of it, which is, you know, if you double down on it, it's really not that much different than the guru next door's version. But the personality is important, um, how you approach, whether there's more mental versus more physical. And what, what Jared said is, is the case where it's like, here's this platter who fits you, who's, who's, who, whose process is good for you. And, um, you know, I trained with Chris Hampton. Chris Hampton is a good friend of mine. He's a no nonsense kind of like, dude, that's like, he's not quite Bill Ramsey, but he's, he's right up there with like, yeah, you're going to suck unless you try hard and, and you do this really hard. And there may be another trainer who's a little more, you know, touchy feely about your feelings about, <laughs> you know, and that might fit somebody else. But I don't think like what they're actually selling in terms of process of training is is terribly different. And and so that kind of says what you're saying. It's like pretty simple, you know, get in there, climb, climb hard, climb harder than you think you can and then rest and then stretch. And, you know, it's like it and a lot of goes. Yeah, together, well, and yeah. a lot of it's just like adapting. um like, you know, weightlifting and strength training protocols mm-hmm. from other sports to climbing. And so there's like nobody it's it's like really kind of odd to think about climbing in terms of like power, fa- like a power phase or something like that. But that in some ways that makes sense. But in some ways it's a little bit just brought in from like strength training regimens. You know what I mean? It's like so some a lot of that language kind of creeps in from other. Yeah. From, you know, Russians who've, you know, dialed in uh regimens for olympic performance um well i mean jared you must have had to come from that um because you've been doing this a long time like you said there was there was three or so people who were like you know taking what they'd learned and trying to apply it to climbing so i feel like your evolution too must have started with like i know all about these sports injuries that i learned about because i'm you know you've you've you know gone to you know school and you've gotten your certifications but how does this information I go like, or I've learned about the body in general, about sport in general, apply specifically to climbers? And I, I feel like even we had talked about that a little bit about you were actually one of these people who were like really giving that thought of like, well, we haven't looked at climbing specifically as much as we should have by now. Um, so would you say that you're pulling all your information and trying to say, okay, well, how does it specifically apply to climbers versus runners versus swimmers versus whatever? Yeah, for sure. I think in the early stages, I was basically pulling from sports that were similar and taking the knowledge that I had, the patients I work with, worked with, and just testing stuff out. And I, if I look back, I was doing things, and Andrew, you made a good point, that things sometimes are overcomplicated. Because in the early stages, I mean, we talk back on that like cover of that book, you know, my shirt's off, the band's wrapped in like all different directions and like four different X's, my hands are over my head. 
there's probably a simpler way to accomplish that task of, you know, of stabilizing the body. And I think early on, you know, maybe, you know, in, in when I was working with climbers, I tended to focus more on like some fancier exercises, some things that looked like climbing, but involved a lot of different nuances. And as I've progressed over the years, I've realized the most effective injury prevention or rehabilitation exercise is the one that you do. And making exercises a little bit more palatable or easier to do or um, or even as climbing specific as possible has really been the the goal and the emphasis. So, so yeah, I've seen a trajectory. And early on, I took a bunch of stuff from other sports. I adapted it. And then over the years, I've kind of refined it to find almost like a hybrid of your standard physical therapy and your climbing specific therapy and almost a combo of both. Where I'd say in the early stages, I was very heavy on, you know, these really challenging, difficult positions where you would turn on a singular muscle, you know, in one spot and it'd be tough to reproduce uh, if you didn't have a bunch of movement coaching. So I've seen at least my trajectory change a little bit with that. All right, Jared, here's a here's a cynical statement to challenge your sunny disposition. <laughs> All right. I love it. <laughs> I'm just here to like make sure you guys don't get in a fight. Yeah, Chris is the buffer, basically. <laughs> I'm not saying I believe this, but uh, let me hear your thoughts to this statement. Yeah, yeah. All physical therapy is just a way to pass time until your injury heals and it doesn't actually do anything and you would be just as fine drinking margaritas on the couch and watching uh you know netflix wow great quotable um so uh and i so i've heard that i've also heard that there's no such thing as prehab strength training as prehab right that's another kind of you know, kind of terminology. Um, but yeah, let's go with, let's go with that. So let me just paraphrase it, make sure I'm in, I, I got I have the right boat. So you're injured. This is for injury, right? Someone's injured and whatever you do, all types of physical therapy, they're not effective and watch some Netflix, sit on the couch, drink a margarita, let the time pass. Yes. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, I, I could put some research studies in the show notes to, uh, you know, to support. But yeah, I think an important part with, with it breaks down to, you know, with injuries, and there's always a level of, of skepticism for anything. If, if pain is mechanical, and this is where I, I place a large emphasis, mechanical meaning, let's say for the shoulder, I reach my arm up into the air, ow, I feel it, I bring it back down. So that's a mechanical injury, right? Something that it's like almost on and off, maybe it lingers a little bit. Those are injuries that I can very structurally in the clinic disprove what you said, because if we turn on a muscle a certain way, or if we compress the shoulder a certain way, or if we have the climber move a different way, and their pain goes away, meaning it's now off, right? Then all we have to do is train their body to do that on a consistent basis. So for mechanical pain, I would say, in my opinion, that statement is hundred percent false, right? Because yeah, and, and I'm can... just going to jump in because I've had <laughs> yeah. that direct experience uh, going to a physical therapist with my shoulder and doing, you know, raising my hand and having pain, and having her brace my shoulder and orient my orient my posture in a different way, and then moving in the exact same position and not experience any pain, like from moment to moment, which totally blew my mind. And so, yes, I'm I'm in your camp on this one. Yeah, so that, point climbing doctor. 
<laughs> yeah, one, one point. Yeah, you know, Chris, two, a couple episodes ago, a couple, Andrew Zero. A couple episodes ago, I, I um, came away with a, an official relationship certification, and I was hoping to to get my PT license after this episode too. But it's not looking so good for me. Actually, I listened to that episode. That you were like, equally me. You were equally mean to Dorian. Too, so. You're, you're, you're it's, you know, it wasn't just yeah, uh, this it wasn't is karma. just a sexist thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's called that's called a symptom modification procedure something that either you do on yourself or someone does manually that can change your symptoms so okay yes one one point for that that's in the camp of pt can change so let's say someone comes in the same shoulder injury they go into those positions but they cannot find a way to change the pain i think that's the camp or the group that you're wondering you know is physical therapy effective right and if you look at it The way, for example, that I would have to make the determination is, are they moving in a suboptimal way that could put stress on those structures? Can we change that? Or is there a muscle that's stiff that's adding stress on those structures? Or is there a muscle that's weak that we need to strengthen? And if something is weak, guess how long it takes for a muscle to increase strength? Not neurologically, but for it to actually build true strength. How long do you think that takes? Um, a lifetime. 10 days. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, ten somewhere days in between answer. 10 days and a lifetime. It takes six <laughs> weeks. So that's where a little bit of the challenge is, is now you're doing something for six weeks where the payoff may be a little bit later. And you may be sitting on your couch, you know, watching Netflix, drinking margaritas. But if you don't put those six weeks into building the strength in the muscle, it's possible that the injury after it heals on its own, because things heal over time, it's possible that, that it may come back. Um, so, so I see physical therapy for non-mechanical pain as playing a role in hopefully speeding up the process, but also a preventative role in things potentially happening again, almost like Chris doing his, his exercises for seven years, you know, kind of on and off is, is you're trying to ward off, um, some, some imbalances. I, I think the third box that I have to put in that we cannot discount, we have our mechanical pain. We have our like non-mechanical pain, like nothing changes it. And then there's something called centralized pain. And what pain is, it's just a perception. We have a warning sign from our tissues. So we feel something in our finger. It goes through the nerves. It goes through our spinal cord. It goes up to our brain. And we have a perception that it's painful. And it's there for a reason because we want to protect those tissues. But after a long period of time, if someone has persistent pain, they've had pain greater than three months, the tissues have fully healed. They may still have that sensation in their finger, that the brain is interpreting as pain. And it's fascinating because I can scan someone's finger with ultrasound and I can see an image of their finger and the structures are completely fine. But every time that they crimp, ow, that hurts. And that is where I think physical therapy can be effective because you're not giving any specific exercises for the tissues in the fingers. They're completely fine. You're retraining the brain to change the perception of what the climber is feeling. And there's some crazy stuff that you can do. You could take a mirror and split the body, almost like you imagine like an amputee that has phantom limb pain. They have pain in the limb that doesn't exist. You can use a lot of different strategies that have been researched to retrain the brain. And I think that goes to a way that physical therapy can be helpful as well. So I guess back to you know, Andrew's comment is, I mean, yeah, watch Netflix and drink margarita, but there are definitely some, some ways that physical therapy can help. And I'm obviously biased because that is my profession, <laughs> but, uh, but those are just a few examples. Yeah, I think you've defended yourself adequately. You've crushed, you've crushed Andrew. <laughs> I submit. 
<laughs> I am nothing. All right. Well, let's um, let me ask you this again for our listeners. So I don't know if you deal with like warming up, preparing to climb, um, those sorts of things. Like, what do you think is sort of aside from like, yeah, just walking in the gym and, you know, throwing your stuff down and like jumping on your project? Like, what do you think is sort of like the biggest mistakes or mis- misconceptions about warming up? And like, can you give us, you know, your one, two, three about like here, look this is the way it's done and this is what every, everyone should be doing from, you know, old people to young people. Or is that too broad of a question? No, no, for sure. I, I think I can. Cause I'm, I'm like super bad even nowadays with, <laughs> I get just annoyed by warming up because I, it takes me so fucking long. Like, you know, I've have this running joke where people are like, Oh, how, how much time you got in the gym? I'm like an hour, which means I'll be warmed up and then I'm going to go home. <laughs> you know, and it's not a, it's a joke, but it's not a joke because it's pretty much spot on. So, so yeah, help me out with like warm up and, uh, what it means, what, what, uh, what's effective and, you know, like I said, what we should be doing. Yeah. So about an hour is effective for warm up time. That's the ideal. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh. um, <laughs> Shit. <laughs> that's a long, no. So this is interesting. So, you know, Chris, if you asked me this question, you know, a decade ago, What's, what was really interesting when I started working with climbers, when I was trying to take information from different sports and bring it to climbing, one of the biggest things that I was trying to pull in from other sports was a dynamic aspect of warming up. So instead of statically stretching, actually going through specific movements of your body through maybe one to three seconds for each movement, maybe going through some flagging positions, some drop knees, bring your arms in different positions that you would climb to kind of warm up the body and, and make it facilitated for climbing. And and I felt like that I did a good job just preaching that and just trying to like, I don't know, everyone I saw, dynamic warm up, dynamic warm up, keep your body moving. And there's actually been some research that's informed additional components of the climbing warm-up that weren't around even three years ago that have now, I don't know if it's changed my perspective, but it's added another level of something that I have a soapbox on for uh, for warming up. In, and that is actually how many movements that a climber should do of progressive intensity before they try to climb a project or send. And they've done some research on this, which has been fascinating. And especially because the most common injuries are in the fingers and the most common injuries with a pulley sprain. And so the goal of warming up is not only to warm up your body dynamically in every position, but to also warm up the fingers so you don't pop a pulley when you're climbing. Uh, So any guesses on how many movements of progressive load? So this is, you know, you're pulling down on a, on a crimp, maybe you're starting open hand and then you're starting to crimp a little harder, harder, harder. Um, how many movements on each side is ideal for warming up? Because after you do more movements of progressive load, you plateau on your amount of bow stringing of your tendon from your bone. So just to give an idea, when we climb and we load our fingers, the more finger load we have, the more the tendons string away from the bone that's normal that's natural and our pulleys keep them in nice and tight but after you climb a certain amount and you load more and more there's almost like a critical threshold of a number of progressive movements where this starts to plateau and you have diminishing gains so any guesses on each side of the, of the body uh, how many how many movements 10 10, 10. Right. well i usually do like one 
So I'll just go with a one. <laughs> one. One and ten. All right. So if you take one, you times it by ten, and then you times it by five, then you'll have the answer. So, okay. yeah. So, so it's, yeah, you do fi- 50 so wait, movements. So 40? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, go ahead. And then you and you'd subtract three and then add seven. Damn it. We're podcasters. We're not mathematicians. Mathematicians. <laughs> yeah, but then take the square root. And no, so it's it's 50 is the is the total number of so they, they did a study and they looked at the bowstring of the tendons. So it's kind of easy in your mind. You think of, all right, 50 moves. You know, how many, well, it's a couple more boulder problems than you would think. But, you know, how many routes can you kind of warm up a progressive load? And the progressive component is quite important. So on the warm up, I'll typically say, yeah, get 50 moves of progressive load on each side. Do your dynamic warm up. So move your body through several sports specific, climbing specific positions. And keep your heart rate up or your, your cardiac output up just so you have the blood flowing to, you know, the limbs of your body. And, and if you want to keep it simple, those are some, you know, three very specific things that you can do. The fourth thing, if I were to add, is attention. And, you know, after talking to a lot of, I didn't learn this from physical therapy. This was talking to climbing coaches, trainers, and climbers themselves. If a climber is just standing there doing some type of warm-up exercise, let's say a dynamic warm-up, and they're mindless. They're not thinking about anything. They're maybe chatting chatting with their friends or whatever. That's not considered a warm-up. You, you need to mentally warm up. You have to be in the present moment. And whether that's, if you look at, for example, I don't know if, like coaches like Udo Newman, some of the coaches, you know, that the higher levels of comp climbing, they're throwing balls at the climbers as they're doing warm-ups and the climbers like have to catch these balls or they're putting them on you know just different tasks where they have to be present in the moment uh, because being present is one of the most important parts you know of of climbing so so there is a cognitive level of warming up as well that i I think is is quite important so 50 moves juggle some balls and then you're good to go yeah 50 moves juggle some balls close your eyes as you do some flags and then jump up and down and get some cardiac output and yeah go send your project nice (laughs) there you go well it's it's interesting because it's like you then turn i mean all that stuff's really really uh good and you could really be very specific about it in a gym setting you know um just having a you know plethora of holds to pull on and you know movements to do but it's like yeah it becomes really tricky to kind of think about that in an outdoor setting and that's really kind of where i've always like been like god we we're just shooting in the dark out here with like warm up because you know how many moves is do- on like an 80 foot route on eight, well I, i'm thinking mm-hmm. typical i mean boulder, boulder problems have yeah. if we're thinking just boulder problems we're thinking what like up to thir- seven to 14 moves mm-hmm. for boulder problems on 80 foot yeah when you say I, i've never understood like how people count moves is that all hands or is it feet too Oh, I'm just including, yeah, I'm including right hand, left hand. Like each time you, you okay. grab onto a hold. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but the problem with like a root, like, you know, cause you're 80 feet, 80 feet of meat. Cause that's like the rifle warm up du jour. Right. But it's not progressive. You know, it's, it's, you know, you might climb up a little ways and climb, have to do the crux right there. And then, do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not as scientific. Right, you get, right. You're just, you're just going to throw yourself at a couple roots that you've got wired. And then you try to go do your project is pretty much, I think, unless you're a real, you know, you really got it in your head how you like to warm up. It's that's mostly, I think, what everybody does, right, Andrew? Like, yeah. 
You yeah, know, you no, I, I don't count. I don't then, know yeah. how how many moves is on any <laughs> right. route that I've ever done. Right. Like, I, I just right. don't even so. know how many moves. I, I don't know if that's like three routes or like ten routes. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So a lot of what I've learned, I just learned from climbers, learned from coaches, right? And I have the physical ther- physical therapy aspect. I have confidence in that. But the component of all these added nuances and levels of climbing. I'm always learning and these different tricks, like one trick that I learned, especially with outdoor climbing, it's super hard to warm up. I used to just like say my approach is my warm up, right? You hike 45 minutes uphill, you know, with a heavy pack. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm good. Climb some easy routes and, and start climbing. But some stuff I learned, and this is mostly from climbers and coaches, for example, you're not able to progressively climb on something. So you're, you're, you're talking about like an 80 foot route of just like every hold is like, pretty easy to to grip onto. Well, why don't you just start crimping heavy as you get higher up the route on easy holds, right? Mm. Adding more load. And you could say that's really bad form or technique because that's not what you want to do over crimp on a jug, right? But it is a way that you could start to add that progressive load if that's your only option. And on the top three quarters of the route, you're crimping hard on some really large holds but the stresses on your tendons are getting higher, so you're preparing your tissues. Um, so that's one method. I, I can't take credit for that. I, I just learned that from my athletes. And uh, another method, you know, portable hangboards have gotten quite popular, and just the you know, just like wood blocks, right, with in-cut edges, and hanging those from trees or putting a sling around your feet and and pulling on those is is another way to to try and warm up the fingers prior to, to getting on something a little bit harder. And there's always that barrier. It's like, I mean, at the gym, it's easy, but you're at the crag. You're like, oh man, am I going to be that person that takes out the portable hangboard that, you know, and, and, and does that or the extra effort. But, but it really does make a big deal. And, and that, you know, we do have research to now support this. It's not just anecdotal. So I'm, I'm a huge, uh, you know, I'm a huge supporter of warming up. Um, but, uh, but you got to make it easy, you know, and if you can count to 50 in your head on each side and you can get your blood flowing and you can move your body through a couple different ranges, uh, to that me, to me, that seems like it's, it'd be pretty straightforward. How much of this injury prevention or just like injury in general, especially around fingers is genetic because it seems like there's like a lot of climbers who never have finger injuries and are really strong and can just like, you know don't even really need to warm up their crimpers necessarily. And they just kind of, you know, can crimp all day. And then there's other people who seem like they're always injured all the time and they're always blowing one finger after another. Is that a a sign of just like not knowing how to warm up their bodies or just not being strong enough? Or is it possible that there's a genetic component that will just never get around? Yeah. I mean, there's intrinsic factors they are talking about like genetics, right? Our connective tissue strength. Um, you know, of our body, you know, maybe our, our gender sometimes can lead to certain factors, you know, if uh, female gender, especially, you know, during, you know, hormone periods may have more laxity, you know, in, in certain areas of the body as well. And there's all these different types of intrinsic factors, the length of our fingers, the lever arms of our fingers, um, all these components uh, we are not able to necessarily control. Yeah, Chris is looking at his hands. I- I'll get into actually the length of the fingers in a moment and how that relates to injuries because I'm fascinated by it. And then there's extrinsic factors that that we look at, and that's warming up. That's you know all those things that we kind of just talked about that you can control, right? So what I can say 
is what I noticed clinically, and this is bias. These are biases, so these are not supported by any type of research. Yeah, just your I own see a, perspective. Yeah, my own perspective. I see loads of climbers with finger injuries. They come in. I have a lot of data. I have a lot of different ways to measure. The main things that I notice, the climbers that just keep coming in with different type of injuries, one is actually circulation. And I take a temperature gun and I measure, you know, the temperature guns that like, you know, now during COVID or kind of maybe early COVID, you'd like walk into wherever and they'd scan your head and check your temperature. Um, They have medical versions of that. They have ones thermometers you can check meat with, you know, just to see the temperature of the meat. It's a little laser. Anyway, I, I take the temperature of the forearm in different zones and I go through the top of the forearm all the way down to the you know, the last finger. And I look at these different zones and I see if there is a temperature drop off of greater than three degrees within a zone. Mm. And this is, again, you could just feel that maybe your fingers get a little bit cold, but oftentimes what I'll notice is on the injured fingers or a climber that constantly gets finger injuries, there's a sharp drop off greater than three degrees from the wrist down to the fingers. And for some reason, they're not getting good circulation into their fingers. There's a phenomenon called Raynaud's syndrome, where you just get cold hands, cold feet, maybe carpal tunnel, you have some stiffness through your wrist. But that's one thing that I do notice that may predispose finger injuries. And if a climber has that, you know, I temperature gun them, I'm like, ooh, you have like a nine degree difference from this zone to this zone. Super cold, clammy hands. <laughs> Super what, cold, clammy. Like yeah. these are, I can barely touch these hands of yours. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if that's the difference, well, my recommendation is actually, all right, we got to change that. And we have muscles in our hands. And so I actually give them a rubber band. And part of their warm up is just flicking this rubber band rapidly you know, across their fingers. So the muscles in the hands create this blood pump. And then they're doing like arm circles as they do that. So they basically have these methods to try and get some circulation. So that's one thing, you know, that that I notice of predisposing finger injuries. Another thing that I look at, you know, Chris, earlier you were looking at your hand, you know, I was talking about like people have these different intrinsic factors. The finger length is quite interesting on the grips that climbers select. So climbers that do a lot of pocketed climbs, like if you look down at your hand and you look at your maybe pointer finger and your middle finger, and then you look at your ring finger and your middle finger, I don't know, Andrew, if you look at your hand and Chris, is your ring finger and pointer finger or index finger, are those the same length or is one longer than the other? Mine are same, but I have a really short pinky. Oh, we'll get into the pinky then. Yeah. And Chris. (laughs) Mine seem to be about the same too. All right. So, so this if one you, and this one. yeah, so check out yeah. all of your, you know, kind of climbing partners and friends and some may have, it's called the 2D, 4D ratio. And there's been a lot of studies on this, none of them in climbing, uh, but just in general of like different finger lengths and levels of testosterone in the body, etc. cetera. Um, but, uh, but can you imagine, let's say you have a longer pointer finger or longer index finger. So it's almost like the same length um, as your middle finger you'll typically favor two finger pockets on that front end with your, you know, with your index and your middle. And some people who have a longer ring finger, they're going to favor two finger pockets, you know, on that back end in the, you know, their fourth and uh, third digit, their middle finger and their ring finger would be on pockets. And so I'll see these tendencies or these biases just because of how a climber has their makeup of, of different moment arms in their fingers the small pinky, like the really small pinky. Andrew, do you notice when you climb what your pinky does? It, it doesn't climb my pinky. It like never touches the rock. It's like too short. 
Yeah, so what does it do? If it doesn't touch the rock, it like locks down, right? It goes into like this flex position or does it go to the side? These are the two different... I don't know. I, I don't even know why I have one. <laughs> so I get I it notice... from my mom. My mom has the same short pinky. It's like uh, everyone's pinky comes up to their the line in their ring finger or most people. Yeah, oh, yeah like... yours doesn't even come close. I know. It's really short. That's fucking weird, dude. <laughs> um, yeah, I just chisel it when I need to crimp on something. But Yeah, so basically, yeah, so exactly. So when someone has a short pinky and chiseling, basically, you know, you kind of push it straight. So it's like touching the hold. So it's just kind of like touching. So you have some point of contact during the crimp. Uh, the The other two things that typically happen is it will like flare out to the side. It'll almost like go all the way to the side in no man's land. And that I notice a ton with youth climbers. And I imagine that when they're growing up climbing, and their hands are so small, their pinkies are small, they can't really get their pinky onto the hold. And so it just flaps out to the side, and then they develop this habit or this pattern. So you'll notice when climbers are crimping and they have that short fifth digit, you'll see it's called abducted pinky, mm-hmm. uh, and it'll go out to the side. <laughs> and then the, the third thing that would happen... My new rap name is abducted <laughs> pinky. <laughs> abducted pinky. There you go. And that actually rhymes with a lot of things. You can rhyme pinky with... Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, stinky. <laughs> um, and in uh, the fi- the final pattern is it flexes too far down. So like you're crimping, you're almost in like a three finger drag, and then the pinky will just be like almost touching your palm. Yeah, flexing I think that probably describes what happens often oh, when I'm yeah. climbing. Yeah, yeah. And so the one thing with that is it just puts a little bit of extra. Uh, it's called the tenodesis effect. But if you put your hand like straight, like if you look at your hand. Uh, with your fingers straight in front of you, and curl your pinky and see what happens. Okay, and then relax. So, note, Chris, what happens to Andrew's pinky when he curls it? Or what happens to his, his fourth digit? Do you notice what's happening? It kind of starts to come with it. Yeah, the, the fourth digit comes with the pinky. Um, and so what that is is our tendons are all... <laughs> Our tendons are all connected. All all of those tendons are connected in one muscle belly. And so when the pinky locks down, it actually adds more strength and more tension to the ability to grip, which can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on if you're, you know, overusing that position. So so anyway, I can nerd out about finger hand positions, all that for hours. But um <laughs> but what I can say back to the, the original question, yes, there's things that you can't control and there's things that you can control. And I do like to focus on when climbers have, you know, finger injuries and they're common and repetitive, the, the things that can be controlled. Is there anything to be said about supplements? Um because I took uh collagen just unrelated without any expectation it would like affect my climbing or i I was i had just read this thing that collagen was like something that kind of declines with age and so i thought Hmm. all right i'll try some collagen supplements and i happen to have like a a finger that was kind of like nagging me and just kind of feeling sore and within seven days that pain went completely away and I was completely blown away by that. And I, I posted that on social media and a few other climbers saw that one of them, like some like professional climbers, like one of them was Emily Harrington ordered the exact same collagen supplement I was taking for a finger injury that she was having. And she had the exact same experience of, of this just like going away. Group psychosis. 
I don't know. You tell me. Were we just like, is this a, I mean, for me, it wasn't a placebo effect because I wasn't even trying to fix a climbing thing. It was, I was just, you know, I'll just like chug supplements. It doesn't even matter what they are. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, but it just happened to like fix this, uh, you know, this nagging finger thing that I had going on that day or that week. You know, nutritional components that's outside of my scope, and I really don't have a, a strong knowledge in that. I get asked the question a lot, and I am familiar with the research, you know, and there's a lot of research out of, you know, out of UC Davis and a couple other institutions on collagen itself. But really, that's not in my wheelhouse. And, and when climbers ask me that, I say, you know what? Here's a list. I have a great list. We were talking earlier about, uh, you know, we have so many gurus in training and so many gurus in physical therapy. Well, here's my list of seven different gurus in nutrition, and they know so much more about this than I do. And go ahead and, you know, and you can you can ask them about this. And and I think that part you can of put me on your list for collagen expert <laughs> for... as well as relationship expert. Do you have a list of seven of those? Uh, you can put Andrew on that on that list. as well. Chris, I got to have you on a list, too. What do you want to be know. on? Aid climbing. If you aid climbing. Wants to know about aid do your climbing reticent. Injuries. Should yeah. we put your reticent wall ascent on the resume? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what about CBDs? No, uh, never mind. <laughs> Yeah, what, where where do people go for this resource? I mean, this is your life. This is what you do, and and you try to help people. As I said, you helped me even just sort of casually um, in our in our conversation last time. So, where do people go to figure out um, how to talk to you or, or how to um, use your resources? Yeah, I mean the the main place is the climbingdoctor dot com and doctor spelled out D O C T O R. And really, I'd say go to the blog and. Like my goal is to get as many physical therapists, as many physical therapy students to put out good information. And there is a ton almost every month. We have a new article on a different injury. Scan through the blog, find your injury, you know, learn about it. And there's a ton of just free content. I think that would be the, the best place for people to go. There's an Instagram page as well. I'm like the worst with social media, uh, but I, I do feel there's some good information out there as well. So you can also scan. It's the climbing doctor doc, or what is it? What's the Instagram thing? Is that a hashtag? Yeah, climbing or? doctor. Uh, yeah, there we go. So the, the at, at, you, you can tell how good I am with the social media. So anyway, the, yeah, the at climbing doctor hashtag type thing, whatever. Um, but they could go there as well. But um, but check out the the social media. But the web page has more. I'm all about the in depth content and you know having as much as possible. So the web page has some info. Oh, there's a YouTube channel. There's a YouTube channel with info too. So uh, that whatever you go on YouTube, maybe search the climbing doctor and climbing injuries. I don't know. Now, what People if they want to see you, you know, clinically? Where are you located? Los Angeles. Um, okay. So yeah, I'm based in LA. Do you have uh, recommendations for what kind of balls I need to throw at Chris next time we climb together? <laughs> Lacrosse balls, yes. bowling balls, golf balls. What do you got? I'd say heavy medicine balls. Throw them as hard as you can. And that's going to be Chris's core warm up. Uh, so he'll be an hour and 10 minutes now before he gets climbing. Perfect. Does the runout make you want to pile in the backseat? generate steam heat, pulsate to the backbeat, then do as the venerable Ramones once advised, maybe, and hey-ho, let's go sign up for the Runouts Patreon. When you become a runout rope gun at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast, you'll be breathing punk rock fire straight into the belly of the runout and getting bonus material like Jordan Cannon's continued conversation from episode 76. 
During my Kraken Classic tour, I had multiple people give me their numbers like on stickers or a flyer or something that they handed to me at, you know, the event or my clinic or whatever. And nothing like that has ever, ever <laughs> happened to me before. And getting well, look, inundated with Chaucey DMs. It all just felt normal. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was just cool that it just felt normal or like the fact that we can even be talking about this now and it kind of feels normal. Have you know? gotten That's any dick pics? It's been the biggest change for me. Dude, fuck. <laughs> okay, so this is what we talked about the other day. If you want to know, <laughs> if you want to know the nitty gritty about the, yes, the gay please. climbing world, so sign up today at patreon.com runout podcast because DIY is as punk as it gets. On today's final bit, we present freshly minted climber Hunter Gladish and his band Television Sick out of Atlanta, Georgia. You can catch up with Television Sick at their Instagram for gig info and new music. The tune is Afterglow, available at Bandcamp. Embrace yourselves. This ain't no campfire weenie roast. just finished another episode of the runout podcast i'm andrew bisharat and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com and i'm chris Kalouse, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com <laughs> dude come on <laughs> because chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die that's true we also have a patreon that you can support our show at and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com no no, 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 no. It's patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at patreon slash runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> no, pod.com slash runoutpodcast. Something like that. Give us some money. Give us some money.